Welcome to the Sporting History podcast brought to you by the British Society of Sport History in association with the Institute of Historical Research. This week's podcast um, is an interview with uh, sports historian uh, Connor Curran and Connor is being interviewed by another Connor, Connor Heffernan, who uh, you might have heard on previous episodes, has done some interviews uh, for this podcast and uh, has done it very well. Unfortunately, on this occasion, uh, Connor's introduction uh, didn't come through very well, although the bulk of the interview did, so um, so thankfully we've got that to play. Um, but I'm going to do the introduction to Connor Curran myself, as it didn't come through very clearly, and then I'll ask the first question on the other Connor's behalf, if you see what I mean. It'll all come together and be uh, clear once uh, I put it together. Dr. Connor Curran is a social historian with a specialisation in sport and he's currently Dublin City Council's football historian. In 2019, he completed an Irish Research Council Government of Ireland postdoctoral research fellowship in the School of Education at Trinity College, where he undertook a study of the history of physical education in Ireland. He's also worked as a lecturer in Irish history at Dublin City University and has taught sports history at the International Centre for Sports History and Culture at De Montfort, Leicester, and at the University of Gießen and the University of Marburg, so Connor's definitely got around. His PhD thesis was published as The Development of Sport in Donegal, 1880-1935, and that was published by Cork University Press in 2015. And he followed this up with another book uh, titled Irish Soccer Migrants, A Social and Cultural History, which was also published by Cork University Press in 2017. And he is also co-editor of New Perspectives on Association Football in Irish History. Um, that was published by Routledge in 2018. Well, uh, Connor Heffernan got straight down to it and uh, asked uh, Connor to tell him why he chose Donegal for his study for his PhD. Hi, Connor. Um, thanks for having me on the show. Um, yeah, so I suppose I'm from Donegal and uh, have a strong passion for sport and history. And um, I started off studying Donegal itself um, for my master's thesis, which was back at St. Pat's College, in, which is now Dublin City University, in um, 2007. And I later decided to develop this into a PhD thesis. And I suppose Donegal had never really been looked at before from a sporting point of view. It was um, a kind of a, um, in some ways, a kind of a unique county in, in, in its um, soccer GA divide, I suppose, really. Um, North Donegal in a show in um, Peninsula. Um, it's really more soccer territory, whereas Southwest Donegal then it's more kind of um, Gaelic football. So I wanted to look at that and, and see, you know, why why that divide happened and why it's kind of um, split like that and looked at the physical geography of the county and um, transport networks, that sort of stuff. But um, I was lucky enough when I did my PhD, I had two excellent um, supervisors, Professor Matthew Taylor of De Montfort University and Professor Mike Cronin of Boston College. And they really gave me a lot of help and pointed me in the right direction of, of um, um, the sources and, and um, the key themes to look at in, in writing a, a PhD in a county in rural Ireland. And I suppose, what was the biggest difficulty in working on Donegal? Because there had been a few kind of micro studies prior to you. Tom Hunt had written on Westmead a few years prior to you, mm. hadn't he? But 
But I think you were maybe the second person to actually do an in-depth county study, if I haven't just insulted someone. <laughs> yeah, probably. I think Tom's Tom's was published around 2007. And actually, I suppose it was one of the benchmark studies for a, a history of, of sport. Um, and and um, I wouldn't say, a, a, I suppose, a rural Irish county, not, certainly not a West B, certainly not a peripheral Irish county. But um, I suppose... Um, starting off looking at the um, late 19th century and um, I mean I suppose there's a lot of long hours spent in the National Library looking at the microfilm, looking at the newspapers I mean a lot of it since then, that was what that was only 2008 to 2012, a lot of it's become digitalised now in the Irish newspaper archives and the British newspaper archives but at that stage there was only one way to do it, and that was just to go in and just get your roll of micro um, film and go online and sit there for, you know, five or six hours just looking at it to find out about the clubs. And there was no keyword search or anything like that. So um, that was very time consuming, but I have to say it was it was worth it in the end when, you know, you can put it all together, put it into databases and uh, make big statements about um, the way sport developed there. Um, you know the religious divides in the county and um, the regions of the clubs there, and you know, of course, Donegal also had this link with Scotland through through seasonal migration um, from West Donegal, and um, you know, and I suppose really you you're kind of challenging this notion that you know you've seen it written yourself in in um, some mainstream histories that you know soccer was a military garrison game, and it was a military garrison game, and a lot of other areas like in, in places like Dublin, I suppose, really in the 1890s, you know, the military kept the game alive to some extent before um, the Leinster Football Association was founded. But in Donegal, that military involvement was really minimal. I mean, there was a military barracks in Ballyshannon, there was one in Lefford, and they had some participation against clubs. But a lot of the time in Donegal, you just find that um, clubs came in from Derry and played against um, teams in Letterkenny and Bunkrana. Or you know clubs are set up like in Kelly Beggs, Nardra, just for the um, benefit of local use, um, and those those sort of reasons, rather than you know this being like a big military um, movement throughout throughout the, the country, which I don't think it was. So when you were working on Donegal, did you find the county to be atypical with regards to the rest of Ireland, or what commonalities maybe existed? between Donegal and their neighbours? Um, well, I suppose Donegal is kind of, you could compare it, and I did compare it in some ways to, to Kerry and 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 Mayo, but the religious population was, was different than Donegal to to those two counties. Um, East Donegal had more of a kind of a sort of a, a Protestant um, population, and it was, you know, fertile land there. It was heavily planted in the 1600s. Um, whereas West Donegal and along the coast was, you know, more poor agriculturally. Um, and, you know, when you look at a sporting revolution and you think of the things that helped develop, you'd look at, you know, capitalist society, money in society, um, transport network, um, you know, the businessmen who are willing to put money into the, into sport, you know, Urban populations like you have in England that you know forty, fifty thousand going to football matches and and um, and so on using the railway network, and a lot of those things were just absent in Donegal. Like the railway network didn't reach all areas. It was there by the by the turn of the nineteen um, hundreds, but it didn't reach all areas. Um, and 
you know, the money wasn't necessarily always there in, in society to, to organise clubs. You had things like the Donegal County Football Association was founded in 1894 and it had disbanded by 1898. You know, different reasons like poor transport, clubs couldn't pay the fees to get around the place, um, couldn't always field teams. Um, so those kind of things, I suppose, curtailed the development of, of sport in Donegal to some extent. You also, when you're talking about comparison with other counties, I suppose Kerry, I mentioned there was a peripheral Irish county, but um, I suppose Kerry didn't have that sort of influence of somewhere like Derry City coming in, clubs coming in from Derry City with soccer clubs, um, and then and as well as the kind of re- religious aspect. Um, soccer got enforced in Donegal. It was organised. Um, first game I found was played there in 1881, and by 1885 there was clubs there, um, and it kind of stuck then up until the 1910s, 1920s. GA started, you know, getting more organised in that period, and Donegal County Board was refounded in 1919, and soccer was really badly organised in Donegal. In fact, the County Donegal FA wasn't wasn't re-established after that collapse in 1898 and it wasn't until 1971 that the Donegal Junior League was set up so GA was a lot better at organising um, than than soccer was they better administrators, they had that sort of nationalist appeal as well of course but they were just um, better at, at offering regular competitive structures for young men um, in the um, I suppose post-independence period and I think in and of itself, that probably showed the benefit of that county analysis. Because something I know that struck me when I first read it was, regardless of kind of the nationalist rhetoric of the GA being an Irish game, it was yeah. more important just to have that like regular, consistent sporting outlet. Yeah, that was that was one of the things. I mean, there was, I think I counted maybe up to over thirty, you know, localized cup competitions that were held in Donegal. Um, maybe from about you know 1890s up until 1920s and they just seemed to kind of come and go and they held one season and then they disappear or the person organizing them might disappear or the teams wouldn't be able to field or you'd lose interest and you know a lot of these clubs didn't keep gates they didn't have um stands they didn't have people coming in and paying money at the gate so they couldn't sustain themselves um but yeah um I suppose the GA did 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 manage to offer that then when it was it was GA had initially been initially been set up in Donegal in 1905 by Seamus McManus who was a nationalist um, and he was one of the leading figures in the Gaelic revival in Donegal at that time but of course he he emigrated then to America and it kind of lost its momentum it was refounded in 1919 kind of as more of a kind of general Ulster GA council movement to, to set up the GA in in its counties in Ulster but um, in the 1920s, the GEA began to offer county championships that were played, you know, on a weekly basis. You know, um, leagues that were played on a weekly basis. Um, then it didn't always go according to plan, and there was loads of instances where, you know, teams messed up and they mightn't have shown up, and they didn't have much money compared to, say, County Cavan, which was went on to dominate in, in All Ireland Ulster Championship and in the All Ireland Championship. But they per- persevered; they were able to get on with it, and the GEA was more successful in Donegal in terms of uniting the county and, and you know developing this county identity than uh, the soccer uh, organizers could could do at that time 
So yeah, it was um, the GA definitely triumphed at that time in terms of their organisation, and they had national school teachers that were running the show, um, and you know they had a bit of free time on their hands, finished school early, and um, well connected, um, and you know good networks for for organising at that time, and um, really it was a GA which which particularly in South and, and Southwest Donegal it was a GA which had merged um, with, a, with a strong county um, championships um, and league structure at, at that time and from the 20s into the 30s and so on and um this is my now like very simplistic purel last question on your first book sport in donegal but mm. when you're approaching something like that where there's no real sporting text for you to draw on just specific to donegal where do you start your research because the kind of breadth of like quantitative research alone was remarkable in terms of how much you gathered to put into that work. So where do you start? Do you just throw a big net into the newspaper archives? Um, I suppose really, I, th- I remember I remember Professor Mike Cronin saying to me at the time, and one of his um, bits of advice was that, you know, you get a, a good, strong chronological framework together. So I was looking from the period from about 1880 to 1935. So you put in the key um, dates and you can kind of work around that. And also, um, you know, he mentioned it was about a lot of the time it was about crunching data and, you know, putting statistics together, making databases and then being able to talk about what they meant in terms of, say, for example, um, you know, something that's straightforward is, you know, looking at the seasons of the months that teams played matches. And, you know, the early GA clubs in Donegal, um, you know, there would have been certain months when they wouldn't have played. And that's because the, the, they didn't own their own fields and the, and the the hay was being saved at that time, you know, or whatever. So they didn't have access to them. I guess just a you know, one sort of anecdotal example, but um, I suppose then you can have a lot of it would have would have been newspaper archives for Donegal. Now there was there was a, a GA archive in the, in the county archives in Lifford, which I I did have a look at and took as much out of that as I could. Um, but mainly, I suppose it was it was newspaper archives that I looked at in, in um, the National Library in, in Dublin. Um, and that was really the be- the bedrock of, of my my study. Now, of course, I did look at other directories, works of references, thumbs directory, and 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 so on like that. But um, a lot of the the Donegal stuff was was there in the newspapers. If, if you just had to sift through it and pick it out, and you know, put it all together, I suppose, structure it all together. Yeah. But but Tom Hunt's book was definitely a, a good sort of um, uh, guide or a good. Um, example of a case study of a county that you could look at and compare it and um, obviously West Mees was a lot more prosperous than Donegal had a railway that ran through it um, had better patronage things like that but um, you still it was still useful as a sort of um, a, a comparative analysis at that time in terms of when clubs were first formed and how they were formed and you know who they these um, movers and shakers I suppose were in society that were able to organize these clubs and put them together and why they did it yeah and I think you took that kind of quantitative approach and brought it into your second work which is Irish soccer migrants so I'm wondering how do you jump from that like really in-depth study of Donegal into that much broader uh, study of Irish soccer players from across several decades yeah, I suppose um, it was it was a bit of a challenge in terms of it was a, a kind of a, a more national and even international study. Um, I was lucky enough to get a FIFA Havilland research scholarship in in 2013, and um, 
I suppose really what I wanted to look at was um, the um, how many Irish players actually went over and played in England and what sort of challenges they faced when they went over there. Um, you know, you everybody's heard the stories about the, the Roy Keatons and Liam Brady's and Johnny Giles, but nobody nobody had really looked at what it's actually like to be a, a lower league player or, you know, maybe somebody who only won a few caps for their country. Um, nobody had really looked at that before. And um, I, I suppose in terms of the methodology, an important part of that as well as, you know, I started off with Hugman's um, player records, which were great because they had records of every single player who was born in Ireland who'd played in English league football from 1945 to up to the present day they have it so you could pick out the Irish ones and put them into a database um we could also do that for the the decided to would initially I, I I just done the post second world war and then I decided when I was writing the book to put in the um period from 1888 onwards as well and look at those players and there weren't as many but um i could still still look at the, the records for that as well um but as i said an important part of it was player interviews so that was that was a really interesting and exciting part was actually getting to interview players who'd played over there and talk to them about their experiences and um so i Rather than just looking at what they did when they migrated, I wanted to look at their background, how they were spotted, how they were picked up, um, how they got into the game. And I interviewed 30 players altogether. I also wanted to do it on a kind of a transnational and a cross-community basis. So I wanted to do Northern Ireland as well. So I did 15 players from each um, Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And I also wanted to, you know, do Protestants as well as Catholics to see, you know, different perspectives. Um so I suppose the interview, I had done some previous interviews before and a GA project had done at St. Pat's College. It was never published. but So I had some experience of it, but really it was um, probably the most exciting part of the research was just talking to the players and, you know, um, seeing what it was like from their perspective to, to go over there and play and um, put up with um, things like anti-Irish sentiment in the, the 70s. Um, and you find out things that you mightn't necessarily find out in, in reading in um, your average Irish history book. I suppose, like, you know, Paddy Mulligan telling me that in the 1970s, and, um, you know, he was afraid to um, speak too much when he when he was actually out in public in, in England. Like, he, um, because of, of the kind of anti-Irish feeling that was, was in, in, in English society with the, the Birmingham and, and Woolwich bombings at that time. Um, players getting death threats, things like that as well. Um, but really, I suppose it was just about looking at their human experiences rather than saying, um, you know, one this, one that, whatever. You know, I mean, anybody can look up um, an encyclopedia and find out that, that sort of data, which is important, but I, I felt a lot of it was, was about, you know, just find out what it was really like to be a player and dealing with the homesickness and um you know richie sadler told me like he he left to go to millwall in 1996 when he was 18 and he was crying at the airport leaving like and homesick all the time and you know those those sort of things really kind of livened the the project up for me i think yeah i think something that was so striking about it was how um upfront they were about homesickness anti-irish sentiment and even just how unglamorous like playing in the lower leagues could be you know in the 70s and 80s was it difficult to get to that level 
of trust because a lot of them it seemed like this is the first time they'd either been asked about the difficulties or they were speaking about it. Yeah, no, I don't. I don't think. I think it was um, a lot of players want to tell about their experiences, want to talk about what they did um, as professional footballers, and a lot of the time, you know, they're not on the TV. You know, they just they finish playing in England or they um, they might come back to Ireland um, and just take up you know more regular jobs again. And so I think a lot of them were kind of you could tell that some of them wanted their stories to be told like they wanted to like I mean John McClelland told me about his kind of transfer transfer disputes with um, Rangers and with with the manager Rangers at that time and that he um, he wanted to sign for Spurs and he knew that Spurs were running for him and Rangers wouldn't let him wouldn't let him join Spurs and he ended up joining Watford instead you know and he was really emotional about it he was really kind of you know what stuck with him the whole time and um, so I think some players have they want to get these things off their chest as well as, as and, and to tell their own story and I think hopefully I managed to do that in, in the book was was to tell um, what it was really like as much as you could to, to, to have those kind of experiences I suppose. And when you started the book were you explicitly looking for kind of players who had played outside of the Premier League or is that something that came about naturally as you started to interview and get more interviewees? Um, I suppose it's easier to, to find players maybe who will speak to you that haven't played um, internationally. Um, and, you know, none of the players asked me for any money. None of them, you know, they were all very kind of humble about it, very kind of down to earth about it, very kind of, you know... Um, I suppose um, a lot. Uh, another thing was a lot of players like that have played at the very highest levels. I mean, they've all published autobiographies, and I don't think they're going to tell you anything that's not an autobiography already. So you can just read it. So I found it a lot more interesting maybe to to talk to these players and get to know them face to face and um, discuss discuss their careers with them and and their their. Um, I mean, they were pretty. Some of them were pretty, you know, just said it as it was. Like, I mean, uh, Raymond Campbell, who'd, who'd been at Nottingham Forest in the 80s, um, he told me a story about how his um, his mother died as a, as a 15-year-old, as his mother had died, and he'd come back to training, and how Brian Clough had, like, called him out in front of the rest of the squad and, um, you know, more or less told him off for going home to the funeral and so on like that. And he actually said that Stuart Pierce was one of the players who kind of comforted him after and said, you know, don't mind that or whatever, you know. And so you get that kind of tough psychology in professional football. Um, but I find those kind of things really fascinating just to, to see, you know, what I mean, it is a really ruthless business when it when you when you look at it like that. Um, that was one of the things that stood out, just how how ruthless it was, um, you know, a few players said to me that you're just a piece of meat over there and when um, you're injured or you're out of the team, you're of no use to them, to the managers and that. And, and a lot of times they were treated like that. And also there's a lot of good players that, you know, could have been playing at a higher level if they had just had a bit of luck or if they had just, you know, gotten a bit of a push or maybe the manager had liked them, had just, you know, favoured them. Um, a lot of it from what they were saying is just down to, you know, luck um okay obviously they have a certain amount of talent but sometimes you just need that little bit of a push just to get you in the first team and um that came out i think in some of the interviews as well 
Yeah, and did you find much of a difference between, say, those who played in Scotland versus England versus North America? And then I think I'm trying to remember, you looked briefly at um, South Africa, didn't you? Some of the players who went uh, yeah. on tours. Um, yeah, I suppose, I suppose it probably would have been more of a kind of a sectarian element in Scotland than, than in England. Um, but again, these players they just get on with it like they just see it as doing their job and the professional and i mean john mcclellan told me like he had he would chat to the celtic fans as well as the rangers fans and um you know he enjoyed a lot of the aspects of the old forum derby and the rivalry and the passion and all that so he said like um you know some of the horrible things about it could be the the things that made it what it was, I suppose, really, you know, you had all that sectarianism and tribalism and all the rest, but that really, you know, um, you know, it was to be involved in that as well as a professional footballer. I mean, he just, he just got on with it and did, did that. And he spoke about, um, you know, having, having, having friendly relations with, with the Celtic players as well and, and so on like that. So, um, a lot of these players are just professional footballers. That's their job, and they'll do whatever it takes to, you know, to perform. I suppose. Um, in terms of of North America, um, you had different cases of the players I interviewed going going to North America. Different stages. I mean, obviously there'd been migration before that in the nineteen twenties to the American Soccer League when it was up and running temporarily but 1967 um 68 then with the nasl i did interview some players who'd, who'd played there like paddy mulligan played in boston um and again i suppose the the one thing that struck me was that he was a professional player and he was there to do his job and um he didn't really bother with the the sightseeing or hang like that you know it was just you're a professional footballer you do your job you don't see what's going on around you you know these players travel all over the world and you know they they're in a hotel room most of the time and they're focusing on the game and that sort of thing um but um yeah um but um I hadn't really, I didn't really look at South Africa too much. Now I know that some players went their own hand, went there as, as from Georgie Best and so on. But um, yeah, um, I suppose really the more the more I did it, the more it kind of expanded out into where else they'd gone to, like like the NASL and um, and to Australia and places like that as well, and some European clubs as well. I mean, there was a few players who did did manage to to go to European clubs and and play as well, like Liam Buckley, for example. He um he didn't actually play in England. Now he um he had he actually had the chance to join QPR, but the move was turned down by, by his League of Ireland club, Shamrock Rovers, at that time. But he ended up playing in um in Belgium and in Spain and also played in Switzerland. So he was, he was another example of a player who he was kind of a, a rare case in that he, he took those, he made those moves rather than the traditional sort of migration just to um, um, England or Scotland. He, he was brave enough to take on the, the challenge to um, go to European clubs. And he also played in, in North America as well. But um, um, so, yeah, there was, um, there was definitely, you know, plenty, plenty of scope for migration and movement, and, and to discuss that in, in the book, I suppose. Yeah. And something that I think was really interesting in the book that you don't really see 
a lot of the time in sport history is what happens when they retire and they move mm. into a kind of post-playing career. Was that something that surprised you or something you hadn't expected to get from them? Yeah, um, I suppose really that one of the things that kind of struck me as well was when your career's over. Like, I mean, the lack of attention given to education by clubs. Um, I mean, players go over there and they sign... Up until 2000, there was YTS system and then became the academy system. But, like, I mean, some players have found that, you know, even the qualifications they've got in those systems over there haven't really amounted to much. Like, Shane Supple told me he did a, um, a B-Tech course um, at Upswitch Academy in the early 2000s. And when he came back home, like, you know, it wasn't it wasn't enough for him to get into university or anything like that. Um, and then you have other examples then of, of players who, um, there's a few players who might have, not that many of them, but a few players who have done degrees before they went over, like Seamus Kelly of UCD. Um, he's a director of sports studies in UCD. He'd um, actually done a soccer scholarship in UCD in the 90s, and um, he joined Cardiff in 98. He didn't um, move over there until rather later in his career. I think he was in his mid, mid-20s when he moved over there. But um, he um, he told me he was... Yeah, he was actually had so much time on his hands when he became a full-time professional that he actually enrolled himself in a, in a course in Cardiff when he was over there, I think, in a master's. And then he um, he said that was part of the reason why he came back to to the, to, um, to Ireland was he wanted to pursue his, his educational career. And he went on and did, did a master's when he came back to Dublin and and, uh, and a PhD. Um, but... Most players, I suppose, they don't finish their leave insert. They go over there when they're 15 or well, 16. Now, you can't go over to your 16, but um, officially. But, um, you know, they don't get a chance to finish their leave insert. And a lot of the time as well, players, you know, they, they're they training in the morning. They're tired after training. They don't, don't want to go and sit in the classroom. You know, their whole, the, the club's whole focus is about putting them out on the pitch and getting them to perform they're not worrying about what they're going to do afterwards. You know, that was that's the bottom line. Like, it's it's all about um, performance on the pitch. It's a business. Um, but you do get some players like Brian Mooney as well. He came back from, he was at Liverpool initially and he'd spells at Preston, uh, North End, Sunderland in the 90s. He came back and he, he went back to UCD and, and Trinity and, and, and um, did some degrees there as well. But, but most players, I suppose, I suppose a stumbling block is they don't have their leave insert, and nowadays the education system has opened up whereby you can um, you can get into college with you know as a mature student and maybe with less points than you would have maybe 20 years ago. But at the same time, I suppose maybe unless you've got a family tradition of of going on to third level education, or you know you've got somebody giving you push like like Raymond. Campbell said that he he became a PE teacher after coming back from Nottingham Forest because his brother sort of, you know, encouraged him to do it. But a lot of players don't get that encouragement and a lot of them come back home and there's nothing for them. Um, and they just left their own devices and um, they just have to get on with it. And, you know, a lot of them operate through networks and they try to get jobs in football and they try to um, work through those sort of um, structures they have built up. But... Really, the the system of education for players has has really has really let them down in the 20th century, and um, post playing career wise, um, once they're finished with the club, I mean some clubs obviously you've got the PFA which um, 
players can build up a pension for themselves and, and dig into it then once they're 35. But other players aren't, you know, mightn't be part of that for one reason or another. But um, I think football in England, I suppose, and professional football, it probably doesn't do enough for for young players or players in terms of their education and then what happens to them when they retire. I mean, it's, there's so many players that come home and they just have have no qualifications whatsoever. No, you know, no. They're used to kind of almost having the life of a teenager as a professional footballer because there is a lot of, um, you know, banter and, you know, you're, Richie Sadler said that the first, um, the, the day he retired from football was a hip injury. He said it was the first day, you know, when he left the club, it was the first day nobody was ringing him up to see where he was or whatever because as a footballer, somebody always would have kept tracks on what he was doing, you know. So it is a culture shock for a lot of them to come back and play in, in the League of Ireland and, um I've tried to find some other work that's not connected to football and so on. Yeah. It's tough and mentally. Given the kind of broad scope of what you're looking at, have you found that people from outside sport history have taken an interest in the book itself? Because even the concluding chapter is, ta- is kind of giving broader themes and scope that you've looked at that would appeal to like a sociologist, uh, but also, mm-hmm. say, a, a football coach or the parents of a child who is being transported over to England at the age of 16 or 17? Yeah, I think um, I think there's still a kind of a resistance within history departments and, and within academia um, to take on sports history as a serious genre. Um, I mean, I'm I'm very lucky. I was in the School of Education at Trinity College. I had a very supportive supervisor doing my postdoc on physical education, John Walsh, who decided to take me on and um, became my mentor for the two years in Trinity, and I still still work closely with him. Um, but a lot of the history departments in Ireland um, aren't really that willing to take on sport. As I mean, if you if you had a um, Let's say you had a job interview for a 19th and 20th century Irish history and you went to present something in um, sports history. I don't think they'd they'd accept that. I mean, you know, that's just a lot of them still don't see sports history as as a serious kind of topic of of study. It's seen maybe as kind of popular culture, part of popular culture. And um, I think that's 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 the way it is still. you know, unless you're lucky enough to get funding from maybe the Irish Research Council or FIFA or somebody else, you're it's, it's you know it's hard to kind of um, sustain a, a career as a sports historian in Ireland. I have to say that. Um, but so to answer your question, I suppose um, it, 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 I suppose you know the reviews of my books have been have been quite good like um from migration historians likes of donald mcrailed give me a very good review in, in um, irish literary su- supplement but i do still think there's a kind of a reluctance to accept you know sports history within um you know academic uh, academia and, and history departments in, in ireland for sure mm. and i suppose that's you mentioned your postdoc with the IRC, something that you're now converting into a book. Mm. So we'll maybe pivot over to that. So you're now working on physical education in Ireland. So what's the time range you're looking at? And then what brought you to that topic? 
Yeah, I suppose um, I suppose it was something that hadn't really been done in full before. Um, and I applied for an Irish Research Council um, fellowship in 2017. And I was encouraged to do that by, by Mike Cronin. And um, I was lucky enough to get that. And, and, and again, as I said, John Walsh at Trinity College School of Education there, he was you know, happy to take me on and I'm very grateful to him for that. And I um I suppose really I'd time frame would have been would be from about nineteen hundred to two thousand, the period I'm looking at the moment. I'm looking at the Republic of Ireland and Northern Ireland. And um I did interviews again. I used oral history, I did some interviews with um primary school teachers and secondary school PE teachers from both Northern Ireland and the Republic of Ireland um, to get their sort of perspectives on that much much later of course into the 1960s onwards I suppose really um, but um, that was part of the methodology but again a lot of it was just looking at government reports it was a different kind of a study because a lot of it was looking at um, dual debates and government reports and um, you know committees on on PE um, and trying to look at why the Irish government ignored physical education in Irish schools for much of the 20th century. And I suppose, is that the kind of reoccurring theme within physical education in Ireland that it's kind of much talked about, but like seldom funded? Yeah, I think there was definitely a reluctance to um, to. to to take on the responsibility for that. And um, I mean, you know yourself from some of the, the studies we've done and from the joint study and the Sporting Traditionals Journal, which we both have, have coming out in the coming months um, on, on physical drill. Um, you know, physical drill in primary schools had been um, uh, made a compulsory subject in 1900. And after partition, it re- remained compulsory in primary schools up until the mid-1920s. And then uh, there was a national conference program to discuss the curriculum, and it was reduced to an optional subject. And, you know, you could say that it it mightn't have been taught that well before that. You know, and I mean, we both know from what we looked at that um, it was, you know, there was... Um, problems in terms of facilities and resources and teacher training in the subject um, and there was a kind of emphasis on drilling in primary schools um, but after 1925 when it was reduced to an optional subject I mean you make something optional well if you don't have to do it then you know so it definitely kind of curtailed its development um, after that in, in primary schools you know, um, and a lot of it came from teachers in the ANTO. They were pushing the whole time, even before partition, they were pushing to have the curriculum reduced. They felt that a lot of them would have, you know, some of them would have had interest in sport um, and been happy to see it. Like there was an example in the early 1900s of, of Daniel Deeney, who was a teacher and was a founder of Donegal FA. He was he was delighted when um physical drill was made compulsory in 1900 and um, expressed that at some meetings but there was other teachers I suppose who were reluctant to teach it and there was this kind of attitude and and within society because Ireland was such an excuse me agriculturally based country as well there was a kind of an attitude too that you know people that are walking four or five miles to school they don't need to be doing PE because they're you know 
they're fit as fiddles. Like they don't need to be, you know, doing anything else. They get plenty of that kind of thing. Sure, you know, and it really took a long time to kind of get get the Irish government to to change that sort of idea that they weren't, you know, responsible for for children's physical education. Um, and secondary schools, I suppose, you know, there was a lot of it depended on. The tradition of the school you had schools like um the royal school in belfast uh, um the royal academical school in belfast and campbell college those sort of ones would have had a strong tradition of sports like rugby and hockey and then uh you had other schools then like pierce's st Andrews and and, and Rath, um farnham which would have had a strong emphasis on on hurling gaelic football but it wasn't always divided on those sort of um religious lines really i mean there's examples of of Christian brothers schools playing soccer as well, even though they got a bad reputation for their treatment of soccer um, and so on. There was plenty of examples in the early 1900s of, of Christian brothers schools playing soccer, playing um, rugby, things like that. But um, I suppose really that the the it wasn't really until the 1960s there was kind of international pre- not international pressure, but you know. Ireland was joining the e, the European Economic Community in 1973. They had to get more in line with what was going on in Europe. One of those things, like, um, was, you know, how Ireland was shaping up compared to what other countries were doing in terms of, of physical education. And um, of course, the government went and appointed. Finally, um, they appointed um, Michael McDonagh as a P inspector in, in the early 1960s, and by 19 early 1970s, they'd they'd moved on and they'd built. Uh, um, physical education specialist college in, in Limerick for that um, but National College of Physical Education was initially but um, I suppose up until that point really you know they weren't willing to put the funding into it they weren't willing to put the money into it and the, the national schools didn't have the facilities and even after that even after 1970s when the 1971 physical education became more compulsory in the in the curriculum even then like i mean a lot of schools wouldn't have had the space in the play playgrounds um it would still have been neglected even up until 1990s um you know there was politicians calling for improvements to be made in it um you know towards the end of the 1990s ireland was still near the bottom of a, a european league of p nations in terms of the time given to p so i mean physical education has become a leave insert examination point subject in the republic of ireland like 2018 but um there's even still issues with that in terms of you know schools not every school can do it it's been piloted in some places um so i suppose as well i suppose there was a tendency to kind of maybe rely on sporting organizations like the ga to cater for training of 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 young children and and teenagers and, and so too this kind of um lack of responsibility say in, in terms of what the government was going to do and i mean the 1960s there was a lot of changes in education in terms of you know free education in 1967 the comprehensive schools and the community schools being built um and i suppose that kind of wider wider reports um from committees on education um as well sort of opened up the idea that that more needed to be done and in, in, uh, in terms of provision of um physical training as well brilliant so i'm conscious of your time and also that you have a phone call coming up uh in about a half an hour so before we head off is there anything that i maybe should have asked you about your research i suppose when 
when will the post doc be turned into a book? Ah, uh, yeah, it's um, <laughs> no I suppose it's kind of just um, still being developed. Like, um, I suppose the thing about a post doc, it's it's you only get two years to do it, and you know yourself, like a PhD, probably takes about four years, really. So, um, it's you know you could do with more time, but you don't, you know, you only get the funding for the two years, and you have to do it then in your own time and so on. So, I'm just working away, and I'm also working with um, Dublin City Council at the moment as as football historian um, on their Euro 2020, which has now become Euro 2021, on their Euro 2021 legacy project. And again, I'm looking at the history of football in Dublin and looking at the uh, origins of the clubs and looking at players I've, I've been last since about august i've been working with dublin city council and interviewing former players who've who, from dublin who've um not necessarily moved to england but just had football careers talking about their careers in the league of ireland um and you know how they've coped with part-time football um so that's kept me going it's been pretty interesting um interviewing those players i'm also looking at female players who, who've played um um, quite recently I spoke to a, a lady who'd played for Arsenal back in the late 1990s um, and also played for Ireland and I'm um, also looking at um, supporters as well and, and so it's kind of trying to broaden it out I suppose um, to look at um, those um, the, the fans behind the game as well as well as that um, and I'm hoping to have that finished by the end of July and I'm hoping to um, get my research out there as well as well for that um but yeah so again um it's great to get a chance to talk to you connor about about sports history and and all your various publications over the last few years i don't think there's many irish scholars who've published as much as yourself recently um and um trick is looking looking forward to sorry the trick is to choose a topic no one likes. <laughs> yeah, no, I'm looking. I'm looking forward to this um, special issue of um, of sporting traditions when it comes out now um, on our, our joint paper on on um, physical drill and also to our further collaborations in the future. Well, so, thanks so much, Connor. So, uh, this, uh, stop